Welcome to Jaipur Bites. I'm your host Lakshtata. It's day four of the festival. It is close to midnight at the end of the day, and you'll probably hear this earlier in the morning. Uh, well, Indian Standard Time. But I want to bring you a session in in this episode that happened earlier today. A fantastic session. I was there in person. It's called Both Slash and Huma Abedin in conversation with Sudha Sadhanand. Great to be in a session with Huma. I really loved your book, and like we were chatting. Yuma, you know, amongst other things, when I read her book, and I, I'm not going to plug this book, but all of us need to buy this book. And uh, what's amazing is that uh, spending so many years in public life, but still, it's the woman who stands up each time. And so many of my friends stand up through humor, you know, in this book. Uh, so I'm going to start by throwing the mic at you and talking about. Uh, what has this book done for you humor i mean i know that uh, you know it's got great reviews fantastic uh, you know recommendations all over and maybe you've already signed your second book but the point is that as a woman and as someone who worked very closely with uh, hillary clinton what what is this book all about for you today when you look back so first of all um thank you so that i'm thrilled to be in conversation with you and uh, I have to make a confession uh, to everybody in the audience that this is a bit of an emotional experience for me because I'm returning to this country um, as an American private citizen, uh, having written my book. And for those of you who know anything about my life, which I assume you don't, but um, one of the reasons it's emotional is uh, my father was born a few hours away in New Delhi and my mom was born in Hyderabad. Um, and India has always had a very uh, special and close place in my heart. Um, I am the classic American immigrant story. Um, my dad uh, was a professor, as was my mother. They were both Fulbright scholars. Uh, my mother, my, they um, met in the 60s, the University of Pennsylvania, uh, fell in love, got married, uh, and uh, chose to make a life in the United States. And I was born in Michigan. And when I was two, my father uh, was told by his doctor that he had progressive renal failure. And he had five to 10 years um, and to sort out his affairs. And one of the first lines I wrote in this book was that my, my father was told he was dying. And so he went out and he lived. And two months later, we moved to Saudi Arabia. And that's where I spent my entire life. Uh, my parents uh, took us all over the world. It's one of the reasons I brought my 10-year-old son here as well, is that back then, in the 80s, um, we went everywhere. And I think it's in part because my parents had a curiosity about the world. They always told us um, a couple of things. My father always said that our eyes are at the front of our head for a reason. It's to look forward, but that it was important to understand history and to learn from the mistakes of that history. And um, so when I walked into the White House in 1996 to work for then President Clinton and First Lady Hillary Clinton, 
it was all of the life experiences and the way I was raised that informed my experience as an advisor uh, to American politicians. And I fell in love with public service. I've had 25 years in politics, uh, many, many highs. Uh, I have witnessed history more times than I can count. Somebody asked me the other day, is there a famous person alive who you have not met and want to meet? And I had to struggle because I cannot think of a person. Uh, I can't count the number of times I have stayed at palaces or been on Air Force One. And when I think about this life of extraordinary privilege, uh, I, in America, most people know my, my story and that uh, I'm the silent staff person. I never speak. I'm invisible. I'm always in service of others. And, uh, and finally, after 25 years, I've told my story. And when people say, how could you go through such hardship? I had to deal with a very public uh, betrayal in my marriage, not once, but three times. Uh, there are people in America who suggest that um, I am the reason Hillary Clinton lost the election. And I had to live with that guilt and trauma for many years. And when people say to me, how do you get up every day? How are you so resilient? How are you out in the world? How are you in Jipur talking about your book? One of the reasons I wrote a book, and here I am at a literature festival that I have admired from afar for many years, is that it was great therapy. And, um, uh, and I also think that it is in some ways, when people say, I don't understand, I don't get it. How can you be this person? I say, you have to understand where I came from. And that's why the entire first part of my book, I really begin with my nani, who at a, as eight years old, in 1912, living in Hyderabad, demanded to be educated in a school, which was something that was not done back then. It was considered improper. And so she cut a deal with her parents that she would leave from the back of the house with two sheets covering on either side as she got on an ox cart and went to school every day. And I think of every privilege I've had, and I really owe it to her. So the book, in part, is to honor her, to honor my parents. And uh, my mother is just as much a heroine as my father. Uh, and my parents always said to me, we don't care what you do. You can do anything in your life that you want. All we require is that you be educated. And so I went to school, I studied hard, and uh, I, I was able to succeed. And the very last thing I'll say is uh, people uh, say, well, you're supposed to be in public service or in politics. Aren't you going to run for office? And I, uh, I write about, um, I share the story about when I was a little girl, my father, whenever he went anywhere, and he would go to many literature festivals, he would bring back a book. And, or many books. And when I was 10, he brought back a book called Silas Marner. And I remember it was at the time it was above my head. I didn't understand it. And I read the introduction and I go to my father and I said, I don't understand, Abu, why did Marianne Evans have to use a man's name, George Eliot, to write her book? And my father said, well, back in the Victorian era, women were not taken seriously as writers. And so she used a man's name. But don't worry, when you grow up, and you write your own book, you will use your own name and everyone will take it seriously. So this book came out in November in the United States and, and in India. And the response has been just overwhelming and gratifying. And in part, it's an honor to be here in, 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 in my homeland to talk about it. Wonderful. And that's why I said that when I was reading this book, uh, it reminded me of my father. It reminded me of several of my friends, you know, who would always say what Huma beautifully said just now, the proverbial child of the subcontinent that you are, Huma. I mean, uh, let me start with, like I said, that, you know, if you read the book, at least the first part is more about the woman that she is, the child that she was. And then, of course, public service is also a very, very important part. But 
she's because of who her parents were and the atmosphere was in her home so you know her father says in the book i don't need a country to tell me i am muslim <clears throat> your father says that when he chose not to migrate to pakistan um you know also his journey to the us where all his mates you know would be praying they were from different faiths that part i really like because it's almost like watching a film at that time um but do you think the world is as uncomplicated as it was you know when your father said that because let me finish uh, you know your mother's family faced they were called out you know in the aftermath of the mahatma's assassination when they had to move to karachi so there is a conundrum there itself would you like to talk a bit about that Well, I think the world is complicated now and it was complicated then. I you know, my father's family um uh you know, they originally came from Central Asia uh and ended up in North India. Uh and my father was a was a great patriot. He loved his country, he loved this country and when the time came for partition, I think some people in this audience uh might appreciate it. His father was a a, a civil servant, he was a medical doctor, uh my dada and um and my father uh was a, one of six boys so there were six girls and six boys in the family um and he was the uh, only surviving son none of his brothers lived uh, past the age of of 10 and so he felt a great responsibility as being the only son in his family and so when the time uh for partition came there were a muslim family the decision was should we move to pakistan was left to the 19 year old you know heir and my father uh refused to leave he he loved his country he believed that it 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 to it was possible to live in um uh, in harmony as long so long as we were willing to respect and and accept other people's beliefs and um and values and that is how he lived his entire life and it's one of the reasons he refused to leave he had actually always intended on coming back home he was promised to one of his cousins he was meant to marry one of his cousins before he left for his masters and then he ran and he met my mother um uh, and they had such an american you know version of a desi wedding in that he he met her on campus and then sent his family from delhi to her to you know to say, take the formal proposal so when my mother got the call from the operator in pennsylvania and the line was you know was 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 bad my mother says i don't understand and the operator says they're saying congratulations you're engaged and my mother says what and this american operator says ma'am you don't know that you're engaged <laughs> so it was it was one of those uh you know wonderful stories but he really he really did and then he um uh spent his entire life actually having you know he didn't believe that you shouldn't have conversations with the other and it's one of the reasons why so i'm a democrat um that's the political party i belong to the united states and people always say to me and i was very close with senator john mccain some of you may have known a um a very you know dynamic uh republican but who was also not afraid to buck his party when he did not agree uh with some of the things that they uh that they stood for and that's the party that i was part of which is you know at a time in our country and i think back in the 90s and 2000s you could have these difficult conversations you cannot now it's a much more divided political country so in some ways i think things have changed so then in some ways they have not changed yes yeah so uh now you know like i i i'll keep saying this that the human the woman that you are and the kind of work you did they synchronize so beautifully and sometimes the woman stands out and sometimes the person who's working you know for uh, for for hillary clinton stands out 
Now, I'm sure that a lot of the audience, and also since I've I came to know that I was going to be in a conversation with you, wanted me to ask you this, and it's there in the book on page 107, precisely, where you say, President Clinton accepts the misdemeanor. You know, you say that in that book. But so far as Hillary is concerned, you know, when you explain this, when she when she's handling the entire thing, she did this for the country. She did this for the family. Now, again, considering that the woman that you are, how did you cope with something like this? Because it's kind of still, like you say, things have changed, but they remain so much the same. It's kind of scandalous for any of us to accept it. You're working for her. You're working in her office. How was it to be those days in that, in, you know, walking those shoes? So as I mentioned, I, I, you know, I spent my formative years. I grew up in Saudi Arabia. It was a very, um, you know, conservative society. Um, I actually uh, didn't know anybody in my uh, surrounding classmates growing up who were the product of divorce. I, it just didn't, it was not part of my, um, uh, my world. And so to walk in, and people in America are always surprised when I remind them, uh, and, and so that's asking me about the impeachment when President Clinton was impeached in the second uh, term of the White House. Um, I was 21. No, I was 20 maybe. I was an intern. I was studying journalism at George Washington University because I had decided I wanted to be Christiane Amanpour, who back in the early 2000s was this really dynamic, she still is, phenomenal, amazing uh, uh, journalist. And I'd seen her on TV in the middle of the first Gulf War in 1990, and I thought, I want to be that, went to Washington. And then by accident, ended up with this internship at the White House, working for the then First Lady, and so to me, and, and, I, and people always ask, you know, I, I was telling so that earlier, um, now that the book has been out a couple of months in America, the one place I spend most, much of my time, frankly, uh, physically is at uh, universities and colleges in America. And I always get asked the same questions by students. They always say the same thing. How did you know? How did you know you were going to be so successful? How did you know you were going to get to do all these amazing things? And I always say the same thing to them, which is I had no idea. I, all I knew, I mean, I was never the best, the prettiest, the smartest. I was never the ist at anything. But what I was prepared to do was outwork everybody. And I walked into the White House, fell in love with the work. Back then, you know, it was a first lady. She'd given her Beijing conference uh, speech, the famous speech about women's rights or human rights and human rights or women's rights a, a year before. And it was just an exciting place to be. You know, I try to take the reader through that what it's like to walk down that red carpet and up the marble staircases, what it is to get up every day and walk into the White House. And for so for somebody like me who didn't, you know, I'd never dated, I'd never had, you know, my heart broken. I didn't understand what she was going through when the Monica Lewinsky uh, story had broken. I didn't believe it was true. You know, as I'm sure those of you are old enough to remember, President Clinton denied it. Um, and I 100%, you know, believed that was true. And so immediately, um, I became very protective of her. Oh. I wanted to do, she had so much stress on her shoulders out in the world, press following her everywhere. So I just wanted to do my job well. And I tell these stories in the book about, I also had no idea what I was doing. I was learning on the job. So I share a story about how she goes on stage for a big speech. It's my first trip with her. And she stands up on stage, she's at the podium, and then she calls me over, I'm at the back of the room, and I go up to the podium, and she says, I don't have my speech. And she's about to give her speech, and I go, run to the car, 
and find that, you know, while I was carrying one version of the speech, she had a, another, you know, version of the speech. And it was part of it was the environment that she created. There's a whole chapter in the book called Hillary Land. And I think in a world where women don't often support other women professionally and often personally, that is a culture she created. I talk about Hillary Land being a place where it's all about how can we do this better? How can I help you get that promotion? You know, you, you're a really good speechwriter. How is your mother doing? You know, congratulations on your wedding. And Hillary Land is all of those things because Hillary Clinton is all of those things. And as women in Hillary Land climb up that ladder of, you know, excellence and, and success, instead of stepping on the fingers of those of us below, our goal in Hillary Land is you reach to the lowest rung and you pull the women behind you along. And I, I, you know, it is one of the reasons I believe that she is such an extraordinary leader. Um, and, um, and, you know, I do think that she, uh, really showed tremendous, uh, both sort of strength of, of will. She had to, you know, as she, she has very publicly said, she wasn't sure she was going to stay in the marriage and decided after much reflection, it was the right thing for her family, uh, and her country. And I share exactly, exactly why it was a very difficult time in our lives. Those of us were in the Clinton white house, but, um, it, uh, it was really an honor for me to be there to help her through it. And talking about misdemeanors, you know, page 161, a senator makes an advance at you. Um, you know, that's one of the best chapters because uh, when you're reading the book, you don't think it's going to come up. It's, it, it suddenly pops up and then it suddenly goes away. You know, it's like not much ado is made about it. So how did you deal with that? Because the, the person that you were, Huma, you know, uh, for me, you were shocked, of course, but then it also seems like you buried it under the work that you had to do that. OK, what is next? You know, something about plan, which fails, fails to plan, you know, yeah. which, which she, keep, yeah. she, she kept saying all the time. So you just get up. Someone makes an advance at you and then you decide that you'll, you know, you'll proceed doing what next had to be done. Talk a bit about that. Well, I did share that story um, uh, for two reasons. So when I first sat down to start writing this book, this the young woman who is the researcher doing all the fact checking for the book said, you know, I've been looking at all the news articles about you from the last 10 years. And the, it, the most common headlines uh, are what is wrong with her and what is she thinking? And it is one of the reasons I chose to put exactly what I was thinking. And I also intentionally chose to put the full truth in the book. I, it's been many years whenever, you know, I'll read an article. First of all, I don't read anything about myself, but my staff will come up to me and say, oh, or my colleagues will say, I heard you did X, Y, or Z. And if it's not true, I just, you know, I just ignored it. But I shared that story because, you know, I try to think of all of the positive things, uh, you know, for those of us who supported Hillary Clinton, all the positive things that came out of her loss in 2016. And um, one of them is the movement, was this movement for, for people, and particularly women and people of color in my country, to come forward and say enough is enough and, and, uh, and standing up and speaking their own truth, which they have obviously every, you know, every right to do. And for me, that moment, you know, women in America are often accused of convenient memory. And I remember when uh, the hearings for then Supreme Court Justice nominee Brett Kavanaugh were going on, was, were undergoing, and there was a woman uh, who had accused him of, of bad behavior many years before. And she was being accused of essentially making this, why did all of a sudden this get triggered? And as I'm watching her be accused on TV, 
this memory of a very uncomfortable uh, situation I had with a senator when I was a young 20-something-year-old working in Washington came to my, just came into my head. And to your point, I do think a lot of women bury unpleasant experiences. We, 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 we just want everything to go back to normal. And certainly back then, that's the way things were. This was a powerful senator. I had to work with him and I had to figure out how to navigate that. It wasn't easy. But um, uh, I, it is one of the reasons I chose to write it. And, and it felt good about sharing my truth. I wanted to put it in context. It, I didn't have an experience that, you know, many, many people, both men and women, have had horrific, horrific trauma and experiences. And I, I wanted to be respectful uh, of those experiences. But I did want to share that story because it's the truth. And I didn't so that I want to be accused of not including it and then, you know, being confronted about it later. And, and I felt good. I felt good about just putting it's all in that book now. And, and talking about which, you know, where you say that some of the women do bury there and eclipse it out of their memory. So did the routine of marriage also help Hillary? Because we read in the book that after the whole Monica Lewinsky episode, she's just being so like a wife and talks about Windex. I mean, I think domesticity somewhere, the routine of it. Did she try to do it or... It, I mean, it seems a bit contrived, but then I'll ask you because perhaps that was the truth. And that was how the marriage was with all the warts and, you know, even good moments. So I've had the privilege of seeing the Clintons behind the scenes for 25, 26 years now this September. And uh, yes, uh, they had to undergo a very public uh, counting of President Clinton's personal failings. But it, it, to me, never took away from this idea that she really loved her husband and her husband really loved her. And they decided, you know, it should have been private. Um, it couldn't have been, you know, given obviously the fact that he was president. But any normal marriage where there is a betrayal is often, you know, you're often able to sort it uh, privately. Um, and so I only know what I've seen, which is a, a genuine sort of meeting of the minds. They're both these brilliant problem solvers. They both seemed happiest when they're in each other's company. Uh, and so I choose to believe that truth, the truth that I see of the two of them. And, uh, and they've been married longer than I've been alive. And so I, I think they made that choice. And, you know, I, I respect them for it. Right. Uh, the first meeting with Obama, you know, uh, where Hillary says, uh, perhaps uh, to her husband, Bill, and says that I think that's the first African-American president that I have just met. You interacted with him, uh, you know, a lot that evening, you know, when you're all meeting and even subsequently. Would you like to share what was it that really stood out about him if, you know, that evening when you met him and later when he became president, of course? You know, I think there's this thing people say that when you're in politics or, or actually if you're just in public life, some people just have it. Some people have that magic sauce, that charisma, that moment when you walk into the room, that presence that um, overtakes you. I would argue that uh, Bill Clinton has it. Um, and, and certainly, and frankly, I think George W. Bush had it as well. It, I, didn't under, I didn't understand why George W. Bush, he was a, from the opposite party. And then I met him, he walked into the room and I thought, okay, now I get it. And so the short answer is President Obama just exuded this, this feel, it's electricity almost. There was something so exciting about him. He was, you know, charismatic and he was brilliant. And when you were in a room with him or when you listened to him speak, it made you feel like anything was possible. And at a time when, uh, just to, you know, take the audience back, we were at least in America, 
in the midst of a many year war in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, which were not going well, um, to have this sense of hope and optimism and excitement in this dynamic young candidate. Now, it's very funny because he now says when he does interviews, he's oh, now everyone says they you know, knew I was going to be president. But it is true. The first time Hillary um, was asked to do an event for him and we'd never heard of him. In fact, I remember somebody called me and said somebody from his team called and said, would you do a fundraiser for this man named Barack Obama? I wrote in my book, B-A-R-A-K. I didn't even know how to spell his name. And um, and we went to Chicago and Hillary met him and did an event with him. And we got in the car and she called President Clinton and she said, I just met. I just met. And this was 2004, 2003. She said, I just met our first um, African-American president and you have to come and help. We have to all help him succeed. Uh, and in the end, she did. She did. She lost to him a few years later in 2008. But an extraordinary, um, extraordinary candidate and uh, really a privilege to work for him uh, in, in his White House as well, which I was fortunate enough to do. Yeah, talking about which uh, she begins campaigning for Obama, you know, that whole chapter and the kind of madness that one had to go through. And, you know, it. I mean, the eye for detail is fantastic, let me tell you. But, you know, when several people are still telling her that, Hillary, you have it in you, you can win, people want you to be back, she just turns back and she says, I am never doing this again you know, so talk a bit about that. You know, what made her? Well, in 2007, when Hillary was running for president for the 2008 election, we had a very dynamic um, uh, primary contest uh, on the Democratic side. Uh, people, uh, there were many candidates running, by the way, including Joe Biden, who is our current president. Um, but um, so it was it really came down to Hillary and then Senator Obama. And we knew when she entered the contest that it was going to be very hard for a woman. We had research that showed that um, American, both men and women have a hard time seeing women in executive leadership positions. So it's much easier for women to run for Congress in our country um, than to run for mayor or governor or certainly president, because it's not even conscious. We have a hard time seeing women uh, in, you know, in, in, in positions of leadership. So we knew that. And all throughout 2008, and I write about this in detail, the specific examples of how hard it was both in 2008 and 2016 to please everybody. We've always said things like, you know, oh, everyone had a different opinion. You know, she would do an event and afterwards, you know, a man would say to me, you know, she should not wear color. She should only wear, you know, black suits. And somebody else would say, you know, she always looks angry. She looks like she's yelling when she's speaking. So when she goes up on the podium, you should put a picture of her grandchild on the podium so that when she looks down at it, she'll see something that makes her happy and then she'll be happy. You know, it was no, but because we had no precedent for what an American female leader looks like, she could never quite get it right. So the sexism was really hard. Obviously, we had lots of challenges about the in 2016. And so, yes, she said she was never going to do it again. She did. After 2008, she ran in 2016 and ran a very you know, vibrant uh, campaign. And that did not turn out, uh, even though 3 million more people voted for her, uh, the electoral system in our country meant that Donald Trump won. And talking about sexism, the man who held up a placard saying, I in my shirt, Am I, is that right? Yes. 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 Uh, two days before the election, there were men uh, holding up signs in the back of the room uh, when she was speaking, saying, iron my shirt, yelling, iron my shirt. So, yes, it uh, it still happens. It's 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 so tough. Tell me something, you know, uh, as a woman who was raised as a Muslim and, uh, you know, like I say, you're the child of the subcontinent. You grew up in Saudi Arabia. Uh, 
But how do you contend with the fact that, you know, America was blamed? You talk about that in your book for most of the problems in the Muslim world. Would you like to talk a bit about that, you know? You know, it's a, I do talk a lot about it. And in part because, you know, there's, I have a chapter in my book called Moving Along the Seams. And in, in part, uh, because I was raised in both worlds, that's why the book is called Both And. I was raised in both worlds. So I share the stories of in the middle um, of the Kosovar War, going to refugee camps in Macedonia and feeling a connection to the women and children there, going to Iraq when the war was just you know, really in a, in a very challenging uh, place in, in 2005 and making, you know, back then George Bush was making the decision about whether there should be a troop surge or not. And sitting at a table with these women and, and literally a woman putting her hand on mine, even though I'm on the American delegation with the rest of the American delegation, including Hillary, saying, I never imagined I would live my life being afraid to get in the car and drive home at night. You know what I mean? think, you know, feeling that connection that I would understand her life and, and constantly hearing when will this end. And I think it's a challenge to the United States. When I started working in the White House back in, you know, 19, in the 1990s, we were the sole superpower in the world. A lot has changed since then. And in part, on the one hand, I mean, look what is happening in Ukraine right now. I mean, my heart breaks every time I, I mean, I can't sleep at night waking up and, you know, seeing the humanitarian crisis that is, you know, we're in the midst of witnessing before our very eyes. On the one hand, you know, people want the United States to be a leader uh, on the world stage. And then on the other uh, other hand, it's don't tell us uh, how to, you know, be sovereign nations. It is a delicate balance. And I think every administration has had to try to do it a different way. Every time I've been in the subcontinent, I have represented the United States, both in India, Pakistan, all throughout the subcontinent. Um, and it's it, it's tricky. It's complicated. It's on the one hand, we, we're one of the largest, the largest sources of funding uh, in the world to many other countries in the world. And on the others, there's this sense of, you know, don't tell us how to do it. How do you find that balance? It's complicated. It was a bit, but, uh, you know, it, did you face that conundrum all through? Because were there moments when you felt that, yes, America was funding a lot of countries, but also being blamed for all the mayhem in the Muslim world? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I think not. Well, look, I mean, back then, I mean, I walked in and we were right at the brink of making peace between we being the Clinton administration was about to make peace um, with uh, 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 the Palestinian-Israeli uh, peace process. Uh, you know, I... It is one of the things that I, uh, growing up in Saudi Arabia, felt so attached to because all I knew from the moment I could watch TV in this 80s, you, every single day, it was about the war, you know, the ongoing conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. And in June of 2000, during the Camp David Accords, we were, they were so close to a deal. And actually, President Clinton has shared the story that in January, after George Bush was sworn in, six months later, Yasser Arafat, who had not signed the deal, calls him up and says, I'm ready to take that deal. So, it is yes. It was this moment of hope, and then obviously, it, you know, it didn't. It did not turn out that way. I was not uh, supportive of the war in Iraq, but I was a kid. I mean, I was sort of. I just knew what I knew, which is Saddam Hussein doesn't have weapons of mass destruction. But I wasn't reading, you know, I wasn't reading any of the intelligence at the time. Um, and and look what happened. And then from the American perspective, I mean, I lived. I worked for the United States Senator from New York on 9/11. And I think those of us who are New Yorkers, I mean, that, um, you know, that moment of, of terrorism was so shocking. So, I mean, I think we're still figuring out how it's affected 
uh, psychologically and emotionally. It's very, it's complicated. It is complicated. Yes. And I appreciate you, you, you feel that, you know, uh, uh, I would like you to focus on Hillary Land. I like that 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 term, that name that you gave. Uh, it's really nice if you read the book. And this is context. It's not something which is like schoolgirls that you know you're my best friend today and you'll have my back. But it's but it's all about women who are leaders. And when they have on their staff a lot of women, young, middle-aged, old, single, gay, working for them. Um, it's really tough. And uh, I just want you to focus on, because it's presumed that she's a woman and therefore da-da-da-da-da. We were talking about it you know, when we were having tea back then, that it hasn't changed. It has changed a lot, but a lot needs to change. So talk a bit about, you know, how was it in Hillary Land? Because I read how you women actually, you know, uh, uh, supported each other each time and through very difficult times, that too. I always say that um, uh, that whenever I've had a problem in my life, um, I mean, people ask me this all the time. Like, does do you, do you and Hillary, you know, still chat? And I talked to her a couple of hours ago. She's jealous. She's not here, by the way, uh, but she'll have to write a book that, you know, come, you know, yeah. then 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 she can come. But um, uh, that she's always approached it as a friend first and as a boss second. And I think she is somebody who knows that if you feel supported in your personal life, you will show up to work. Mm -hmm. And, and do your best. And that has been the culture in our office. I think it's one of the reasons why she is such a model for leadership. I'm obviously biased, but I've seen it. I think she's one of those people who, if you're sitting at a table, and I, I have spent a lot of time with a lot of uh, very successful men and women, and, and she, has one, she has two things that I think you need to be a good leader. She has radical empathy She's always able to put herself in somebody else's shoes, always. And secondly, she does not have an insecurity about who she is and what she knows. She really doesn't. So a lot of people, they don't want smarter people than them at the table. If I'm the CEO, I don't want that guy who knows this better than yes. me to be at, or that woman to be at the table. She's exactly the opposite. She is in the who knows this better than I know it on everything from the economy, infrastructure, climate, you name it, healthcare. I want all the smartest people in the room and I want this at the them at the table. And there's always more seats at the table. And I think that is why whatever job she's done, has she does really well. She does successfully. Her challenge has always been in electoral politics, right? It's, it's winning, even though she's been very successful. It's it, when she's actually been governing, when she's actually had the job, I mean, her ratings have basically been 10 for 10. I mean, just tremendous. And I think it is in part that she has that ability to connect and create a supportive work environment. You know, my 10-year-old uh, is backstage when he was first born and I was trying to figure out, how do I do this? What do I do? She said, just bring him to work. So I brought him to work. And in fact, you know, I, 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 there were days, the very first day I brought Jordan to work and I was still nursing I had stayed at a hotel the night before and I was nurse, I had pumped milk so I could feed him with a bottle in these meetings. And we're at the State Department with, you know, in these very official meetings and the hotel threw out the bottles of milk. So here I am spending, I think the mothers in the room will relate to this. And so here I am at this big official meeting and turn to my boss and say, I need to present, but I also need to feed my child. She's like, go ahead. I mean, it is making your life easier, making it normal, things that are, you know, not necessarily. And that's what she does. It's just figure out what the problem is. Let's find a solution. 
And it is one of the reasons that she's been, uh, you know, so successful. And I end the book. One, she is one of the reasons. I have people in America who come up to me and say, I wish, uh, I wish I had read this book before she ran for president. Like, who, I don't, this Hillary is just an extraordinary human being. And she is. Uh, and talking about which, you know, when you first, and, and, you know, you, you receive a call. I mean, I'm going back now. It's part one of the book. You receive a call. You know, you, you are at a family. Yeah wedding or function and, and then you rush you you know you you're just you're not thinking you're just rushing the point is that how long did it take for because you were also terrified and in the book i could see sometimes you were nervous not terrified nervous about doing things right and there are times when hillary says it's absolutely okay and i'm sorry you know uh, things will go right i mean it's not going to get bad from here how long did it take for you to kind of gain that confidence in both you as women as somebody who's working as a team you know, my father always said that a good life um, is a balanced life, but I did not follow, follow that advice at all. And, <laughs> and the story you're referring to is when I was at a family wedding uh, in 1997, um, and I was in the middle of a wedding and I got a call. I had just started working at the White House. I was a very young, brand new staff person. And I got a call from the White House saying the first lady uh, is going to Argentina. Somebody dropped out. Do you want to travel? You'd have to leave immediately, basically. And I, I, I have this moment of making the decision that right in front of me is one option, you know, my, my, uh, a marriage and my family, you know, this, a, a good life. And the other is leave and take the call and get on the plane. And I will tell you, I always took the call. I did not stay with my family, like ever. I have missed all my nephews and nieces' births, their weddings, I missed my friends, my son's first words. I missed his first steps. I was not there because I always took the call. I was always, always working. And it is one of the reasons I excelled. It's one of the reasons I did so well, but I did not have that balance. And it, it really shook me um, when she lost in 2016. Hillary was the one who basically said, go you know, focus on your family. And one of the things I've tried to do over the last few years is self-care, taking care of myself, I am like a lot of people. I'm not sure this is a female thing. A lot of people have a fear of public speaking or this imposter syndrome. I had that. I didn't think I'd be very good. I didn't think anybody, I'm shocked there are this many people here. I didn't think anyone would be interested in ever hearing my story or listening to me, which is why the last few months I've been kind of walking around on this crazy, like, I think I'm in a dream. Um, but I have found balance. I now try to find friends. I mean, I have two friends in the, in the front row, dear friend Shavina and her, uh, her, uh, her daughter, Devisha. I texted them three days ago and said, I'm coming with Jordan. And she's like, let's have lunch tomorrow. I would have never done that five years ago, 10 years ago, just having these relationships that, you know, are valuable and they're sacred in some ways. And that female friendships in particular, I think are very important, um, because you get something out of it. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so now I'm going forward. I mean, I, I, by the way, I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up and just turn 46. Uh, and, uh, and now I'm trying to figure out my next job, my next life. But I, this is my year of saying yes. Shonda Rhimes, who wrote her memoir in 2016, her book is called my year of saying yes. And this is now my year of saying yes. So exploring the world with, you know, open mind and heart. How wonderful is that? Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Jepper Bites. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. 
This podcast is produced by Launchora in association with Teamwork Arts. Please follow or subscribe to this show wherever you're listening to this to be notified about new episodes.